All right, welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 314. Let's talk about Pi. All right, this is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. And uh, so, 314 and Pi. It seemed like it could go together. Pi, SMLR, Raspberry <laughs> Pis. We have all kinds of fun Pi-related jokes that we can probably insert along the way. Yeah, Apple Pi is my, be- my favorite. Well, I do have an article about the Cutie Pi, the tablets. Um, uh-huh. So... We talked about them before, but they're, they're reaching closer to release. So I don't, I don't think I have any more updates on them, but it's still cool. One of the things that we'd like to do is uh, share some of our recent Raspberry Pi-related uh, yes. escapades. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for me, uh, I rebuilt my barn radio. I built a nice wooden shelf that's hanging up in my barn. I've got a Hi-Fi Berry Amp 2 powering two Polk speakers. Um, passively, and I've got a little extra power supply that powers this, and I can hear the music at the end of the block, like a mile away. Really? It can can pump the tunes. Wow. That's pretty cool. I've got a picture of it uh, that'll be in the show notes, too. It's nothing special looking, but man, does it sound good. Yeah. It was a nice setup. I've seen that. Um, my staff built, and I have not played with it much, but uh, they've been playing with some of the, I believe it's called Shinobi, which is an open source uh, NVR platform. Hmm. And they've been connecting different cameras to it. And it's part of a bigger project that we will do a debriefing video on, um, but it's going to help someone who uh, needs some assistance with their older parents. And it uh, even allows some two-way communication so they can see what's going on in a camera and be able to talk to people. It's, it's a whole slick product. That is pretty uh, cool. Idea. So, but it's uh, it's an open source platform and it will run on Raspberry Pi and it does have a lot of different camera support provided the cameras are, is it own, own VIF, I think I say. So, so it supports standard cameras, so it's got a big, big variety of uh, things to support. And of course, running on a Raspberry Pi 4. Interesting. And that, Shinobi was also a pretty good Sega game way back in the day. Oh. Yeah. I don't know what, if that's what it's named for, but uh, the dev did contact me. He's excited because no one's done any real videos on it, and we want to do a deep dive into it. Uh, my staff got it all set up and running, and they're less Linux savvy than me, so I should be able to figure it out. <laughs> Connected to a remote control car, and you can drive around the house, too. Drive around the house <laughs> with it. Chase after your elderly parents with that it. That would be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the only Raspberry Pi project we got kind of going. I mean, I still have my Raspberry Pi sump pump working fine, but this is the dry season. So right now i got to go get spider webs out of the way. A spider has built a nest on, uh, on a web in front of the camera. Oh. <laughs> no, I found this arm, this articulated arm that you can control with oh. a Raspberry Pi. Oh, so now I have to oh. add controls to it to blow, you know, get rid of spider web. This will save me from going under my house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, speaking of that control, the, uh, one of our clients, we couldn't do a job because their basement was flooded, and they didn't know because they don't oh, go no. down there because it's part of just where it's storage for them and, of course, where the servers are. And I'm like, I can't complete the task assigned to me. And they're like, why? And they're like, well, I, I don't have, uh, like, waiters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, my parents are having the same problem with uh, their sump pump. They had, a, uh, the like, the circuit just uh, overloaded and, and went out. During the storm one time, they came home and they had like a foot of water through their whole basement. Oh no! They they have two sump pumps, but it's on the same circuit, oh. so they both went out at the same time. Uh, so my plan is the next time I get out there, probably uh, later this month or, ne- or early next month, is I'm going to run two new circuits for them, so the the brand new circuits for each of those, and set up uh, Raspberry Pi cams on both of the sump pumps. There you go. 
Yeah. They, I haven't found, I know they make them, uh, they make some water sensors to set off alarms too inside, or, and they can be connected to the GPIO on a Raspberry Pi. I haven't really dug much into them. It's been on my to-do list, because I wouldn't mind having that, because it's cool that I visually see it, that gives me that, you know, me knowing confirmation, uh, but mm-hmm. it would be cool if the, if the sensor would also let me uh, have an alert, so that's goals. <laughs> yeah. So that that project really doesn't need to be a newer pie, right? It, oh it no, can no, run I'm on running, an older that pie. project is running on a really old pie. Um, not it's. I think it might even be Raspberry Pi two. I found an older one. Yeah, yeah. that's so why you should look up one, a couple of those and just run it on that. I had the the original Raspberry Pi camera on the first pie, and I mean, as slow as that thing was, uh, it still did uh, pretty good at the time. Hey. All right. You know what? I, I take that. I do have it running on three, just the basic, the very first gen three, mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted a 1080 camera on there with night vision. You don't really need a 1080 with night vision to see a sump pump, but it made the project cooler. Right. <laughs> I can see a lot of details on that spider. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so I think that that's going to be my project. That sounds fun. Yeah. What else did you do, Tony? Anything exciting over the last couple of weeks? You've been uh, well. Not it's the opposite of open source stuff. It's my wife for her birthday. She wanted a Mac, so I don't have the budget to buy a new, you know, fifteen hundred dollars worth of Mac stuff. So I was able to buy get a, a used uh, Mac Mini and then do a hard drive upgrade on it, um, and then give that to her for her birthday, and she's pretty happy with it. Very cool. I always liked the Mac Minis. Uh, my first job was a uh, a Mac systems administrator for a school district, and I liked taking those apart. It was fun. Yeah. The one problem I have with it is I didn't realize this when I picked it up. I bought it from somebody off of uh, the Facebook Marketplace. Uh, the The model that I got, you can't upgrade the RAM. Oh, it's like they the, in 14 they made it so you could replace the RAM and when you went to 15 they it's hard soldered in. And so when they said it had 4 gigs of RAM I'm like that's not a big deal. I'll just get like a 8 or 16 gig and slap slap it in there. Can't do it. So, I'm going to keep my eye out see if I can get like a, a motherboard or something that has I can just swap out the motherboard on it. Yeah. Very cool. Any other exciting things besides the Polk audio that you can hear a mile away with a Raspberry Pi? Oh, yeah. I've I've done lots and lots of maintenance, both on the house and uh, the network, uh, since I've been gone. Um, combined with work travel and wedding travel and all of that, um, I rebuilt my firewall. Ooh. So I got rid of the old uh, China box that I was using, <laughs> and I, I repurposed that. Um, but I, I rebuilt this firewall with... A PC Engine's APU 4C4 box. Okay. It's this tiny little thing, and I believe NetGate resells them. As, yeah, it's as the base one, model for some of the NetGates. Yeah, and so far it's working great. It's got hmm. uh, four gigabit Ethernet ports on it, um, and I had two before, so that's a nice improvement. It's got four gigs of DDR3 ECC RAM, which is which is always great to have, and it's got a quad-core Jaguar, and that's a 64-bit processor with um, AES-NI support. So good good for offloading all of the crypto processing. That's nice. What do those uh, run? Um, I spent just about $200 uh, for the box, for the, the motherboard, the case, 
and all these extra little peripherals I got. Oh, nice. Um, the, the very cool thing about it is that instead of a traditional BIOS, it runs core boot. And I got to break core boot and had to reflash my device. Mm-hmm. Um, I let the smoke out of it once by plugging in the reflashing utility the wrong way. Oh, very no. easy to do. Uh, very noticeable, too. <laughs> oh. and, Thank- and that one still works? even though Thankfully, it still out? works. Yes. Wow. Um, but core boot is fantastic. I I love core boot. I wish more devices could support core boot. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know what I did uh, do? I forgot about. So on my Plex server, uh, I I use it as a, a DVR, and it re- sort of records mainly kids shows. You know, so my kids can watch them over and over and over. The issue with the DVR is for a half hour, it's almost two gigs of data for a half hour show. Uh, and I have, while I have, you know, quite a bit of space, it's, I don't want to use all of my space up on my kids' TV shows. So I uh, wrote a script for, and for Handbrake and uh, have it running on a cron job that uh, it'll go through, find all the those recordings, and re-encode it down to half the size. <laughs> and uh, I've already freed up like 500 gigs worth of space because oh, nice. of that alone. Yeah. Nice. <clears throat> Uh, what language did you write that in? Bash. Okay. Yeah, so it's just a Bash shell script that uh, it uses find to find all the, uh, uh, you know, all files that are end in .ts and then re-encodes it and then deletes the the old file. And then uh, Plex will go through and rescan when there's changes on the file system. Um, but it also rescans every, like, 12 hours. So it'll just pick up the new file if I don't manually tell it to do it. Very cool. Yeah. And speaking of Plex, the other thing that I did with my now old firewall, I turned that into a Plex server. Oh. Um, I bought an extra one terabyte SSD to go into it. Uh, Turns out that I can only have one SSD in the thing. So um, I put that extra SSD into a a USB 3 uh, cart, and I've just got it plugged into uh, the Plex server. Um, Mm. Plex itself is running on Docker, uh, so it's just a container that can come and go as I please, um, which means it's very lightweight compared to a virtual machine. And uh, I've got XFAT on this SSD, so that way I can transfer, so I could transfer all of the uh, TV shows and music and stuff from my old Windows box onto this hard drive. Nice. Yeah. And that's that's been working like a dream. I'm so glad to finally have a Plex server in the house. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Very cool. So we have been going old school, which I'm holding a tool in my hand. And if anyone knows what that sound is. Tom has been playing with this thing all morning. It's yeah, I can't help down. it. It's compulsive. It's <laughs> uh, a 66 punch down. 66 it? block punch down. And mm-hmm. there's at least some... Uh, listeners with gray hair that are going i know what that sound is i know what that device is and uh, this is a it is indeed a 66 punch down we have done so many analog phone lines in the last couple of weeks it is uh unnerving mm. i always think that these things are dead they won't go away so uh, we put in a new phone system but the customer uh, through a lot of series of things does not want to get rid of any of the analog lines uh oddly for political reasons that i won't go into it's really a strange scenario but either way we had to punch down a bunch of 66 block analog phone lines and that's been an interesting aspect like 
when you mate a new system that supports IP, PBX, and everything else, but then we have to tie it to a bunch of analog phone lines uh, for things. And yes, we even have a, another client that we had to punch down. And this is interesting. Their KVM stuff is still managed over dial-up for out-of-band management. They don't believe in cellular. They don't want cellular. What? Yeah. And so that they, sounds horrendous. It, I know. That's why I don't even know how all this works. But it's their out of band serial consoles have modems in them. So they're these unusual out of band serial console interfaces uh, that manage all their Cisco stuff. They have fiber in the building, but their backup is dial up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so they can do out of band and check them why the fiber's down. It's just we did a bunch of punching down and setting it up for their remote their satellite locations that are here. They're based out of Texas and our satellite locations here in Michigan need that set up. So that's what we got contracted to configure because we know how to do it, which is unfortunate in some ways. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but they had no problem paying dearly for our time, so we were we were fine. We set the price and we thought we just didn't want to do it, so we set a price that we thought they would say no to. They did not. <laughs> so eh? we did the job. And uh, it's because we know how. And they couldn't find other tech companies that did know how, which I thought was unusual. But then I guess not that unusual. Young tech people just don't know how to do this stuff. Hmm. But that, that was at least one project. Um, the other ones have been we uh, got more of our lab set up. We're building a bigger lab for pen testing stuff and bug Ooh. bounties and things like that. So my friends needed uh, a place to play. So we built a virtual environment. And the server is physically, because we've run a room in our rack, physically on top of the rack. Oh, really? So if this gets bigger, we're just going to have to run another suite and build out a our own little mini data center here. That's, <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like, that may be a goal that we get to, and I'm excited about it. If I can sustain it, like, if there's enough interest in it and there's enough money involved, I will go a couple suites down, and this is a pretty solid building. with a, This has a cement, poured cement roof with uh, uh, I-beams holding it up. So this is a solid building. Um, yeah. yeah. Throw some... Those some more. There's plenty of power here. Yeah, plenty <laughs> so, of power. Get some decent bandwidth in here, and you're good to go. Uh, we have three fiber options here. Yeah. Uh, Wide Open West has fiber. AT&T has fiber. And Level 3 has fiber. Uh, they can run really? the fiber on here. And the backup, uh, that giant building behind us, that big multi-story vacant building. The only reason that building isn't torn down, that is the site-to-site backup for several companies uh, that they do all their backups over site-to-site links, and that building happens to be the tallest. So that entire, I think it's a, a oh. 13 or 12-story building that has no occupants. I mean, like it has microwave at the top or something, or yep. is that what it is? They, well, they have, fiber, they have fiber coming into it, and then at the, they have standard site-to-site links on it. Not even uh, There's someone somewhat in the microwave band range, but there's if you look, there's a ton of things on top of it. Mm-hmm. They make so much money that the building owners with zero, occupancy uh, have that building and it's for sale me and my friends have been talking about if we can pull our money together to buy it because it makes enough money off of renting the bandwidth that tenants are a value add it has no tenants right now because the building needs upgrades hmm. they can keep a building with no t- it's just a giant antenna that's all that building is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we've been um playing with all that fun stuff so cool it's been fun and you know i'm going to be uh, i did a handful more videos on some uh some hacking and things like that that have been kind of interesting because there's mm-hmm. so much hacking going on in the IT market. And I did finish a data center project. I need to do a debrief video on uh, with redundant uh, PF sensors and, and HA failover, including uh, redundant switches in HA failover. So it's a, we put in a solid – they want to own all their own hardware, so we stacked them up with PF sense and edge switches. So Ooh, very cool. Yeah, very fun stuff. Uh, oh, we found a bug in the edge switch, but we can't reproduce it consistently. Um, 
So that's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. We got angry. Turns out wiping your Switch config and restarting fixes mystery problems that you can't solve. We did it. We did an upgrade after we programmed them, and it broke everything. You couldn't add new uh, VLANs; they just wouldn't work, not consistently. So mm. we wiped it and redid the programming a second time, just by hand, and it worked fine. And we can't figure out why. So we're we're still trying to dig into some of those problems. <laughs> yeah, something didn't get pushed right the first time through. Yeah, that was a real annoyance. No, no amount of troubleshooting would reveal the problem um, because it just the switches wouldn't work. The mm. ports wouldn't work. That was a big aggravation. It um, unfortunately caused the client an extra two hours of billable time that we have no way to account. And he was working with us on it, so he's seen the problem because he put a lot of the programming in himself. He couldn't figure out why it wouldn't work. We tried troubleshooting it. We couldn't figure it out. But when we created brand new VLANs, they worked, but the existing ones wouldn't work after the upgrade, and nothing we could do could make them work. So we just wiped the switches, loaded them again by hand, and just went programmed all the VLANs, worked flawlessly. Yeah. So we're like, <laughs> just sorry we got a billion for it <laughs> right <laughs> unknown unknown see that's the kind of the uh what people are scared about with sd wan kind of sd lan oh, stuff yeah. is uh because it's all like software that pushes the config out to the machine and you don't know if you know if something happened during that push whether part of it pushed and not the other and that's why it was broken right so that's that's why uh there's a lot of holdouts that still like the command line yeah, well, and we were at the command line trying to see the problem, and that's where it got worse because we just couldn't see the problem. We just seen it not working, but it didn't give an error message for us to chase. So, mm. and uh, the forums were uh, useless. They were like, reload the switch, wipe the config, do it again. And if we just push the same config, it broke it again. So we knew that was an, an option. Um, and I, may I got to dig into this more? I wish, like with PFSense, it's easy. I can dump an XML file and see the config in very detail. And someone made a really slick Git. There's a GitHub project called PF Focus, and you take the XML file from PFSense and it creates a beautiful summary of complicated PFSense things. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. Try it, Phil. Mm. I have to. Uh, so, Tom, you've got a classic case of the Heisen bug. Oh. <laughs> uh, so that's a software bug that appears. Uh, or doesn't appear when you attempt to study it. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a very different, different definitely a problem. Uh, but I, I'm wondering if there's something out there, because ones I've seen people have asked me about, there's a couple of switches that run on open source, but they're outlandishly expensive. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the company that makes it, um, but they're, I looked at the cheapest switch I can buy, it would be well over $1,000, and it runs Linux. So I'm like, that's kind of cool, but that's not affordable. Um the ubiquity edge switches are affordable and do what we need them to do. We need, you know, two switches, failover, basic config. You just need to separate a couple of VLANs. I don't need a $1,000 switch to do that. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe if someone has some suggestions for open source switches that run Linux that have easy configs, uh, that would be great. Uh, I, I know about what's that, Vios. I know you can run Vios on some of these, but they, that's a really complicated way to do it. You have to do everything by hand. So is there some happy in-between open source switch out there, like there is open source firewalls? There is one. Um, I, I can't think of the name right, right at the moment, but uh, they were at Ohio Linux Fest last year. And at the hospital, we were running them. And at uh, my current job, we're running them also. Their name eludes me. A few people have asked um, me if I review them, but they're the ones that are over $1,000, I think, a switch. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure they yeah. are. That's yeah, they're, they're definitely enterprise-level equipment. Yeah. I just but. find fine. You know, I want that. I don't need every bell and whistle. And can you make one that's relatively easy to use? It costs less than a thousand dollars. Because like a decent edge switch managed is a few hundred dollars. That's that's not mm. an unreasonable price. So, get to work, people. If you have the links, throw them at us. 
<laughs> email to show at smlr.us. Speaking of that, let's talk about other listener feedback we got. You know, actually, I had one oh. more thing I just oh. thought about. Go ahead. So I, I ran into a way that uh, or I just put it together last last night or two nights ago when I was at work that uh, to add notes to commands as you're running the command. Ooh. And if you think you're right typing out a command, it's just like it's similar to bash script, right? It's bash. It's just you can do a one-liner and stuff. So at the end of the command, you type out, hit pound, and then add your note. Because pound is comment, right? So it'll, it won't do anything with beyond. So I was doing some stuff with a customer. Like I had to um, do a TCP dump for a customer. And I had, so what I did is I, it just would normally be TCP dump the options and then the IP address that I was looking for. Well, normally all you see is the IP address. And then if you need to go back and look at it or rerun for that same machine, then you might have like so many different IP addresses you're trying to sort through. Well, if you do pound and then the host name, then, uh, you know, then you know exactly which one it was. Mm. And then if you copy that out to save it, then you know this command was running for this machine. That's a good tip. Yeah, yeah thanks. I've been, I've been uh, noticing all those little things like that with my friends who do pen testing. Boy, their collection of scripts. What they do is they create a folder, and they have a whole series of folders that are all different names for different scenarios, like as a company running this mm. version of Windows, that version of Windows. So they have this really unique way they organize things. This is kind of common for a lot of the pen testers, and they have all the different scripts they do. So they uh, they say you just can't remember all the commands, and they use so many of them at once, so they just tie everything together. Like this is, oh, this is how we're going to exfil on a 2008 server running this version of SQL. These are the different commands that work on this uh, to help exfil data. Or if they know what version of XSIM they're running, and there's some XSIM flaws lately, so they'll dive into it and have all their scripts pre-set up and they frequently copy them between the different directories or symbolically link them together it's kind of they create these really uh intense hierarchies and that's like their suite so to speak of tools yeah. uh, that they use because you just can't remember every parameter for nmap and every parameter for every little tool they use so i thought that was kind of same thing and they've got so many notes inside of them i've been trying like to talk that. some of them some of them have them on github uh and i learned that's why you can if you follow a red team person who posts a lot on github following them what you can learn because they'll keep publishing all that scripting stuff they're just using all open source tools yeah so it's a matter of all that little knowledge when you want to gather data i so. like that yeah i've uh my bin, my bin folder is getting big enough where i'm starting to forget what's in there mm -hmm. so this would be a that'd be a good way you know situation based uh folders yeah, I'm not doing it on GitHub. I use sync thing between all my computers, but every time, like for a while I had some scripts when I was doing a lot of uh, WordPress cleanups uh, mm -hmm. for clients. We got into that a couple of years ago before WordPress got a lot more secure. Uh, I had all kinds of different ones of how to remove different uh, things, and I'm not good at set and awk. So once a script is written, that would go through the PHP and trunk and, and remove all the things that needed to be removed after a website was infected, I could reverse out a website really quickly and get it back up and running. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Listener feedback. So you guys were emailing back and forth with Brian mm -hmm. uh, about his um, his cable modem or or DSL modem. I don't know. Uh, Netgear DM eleven one eleven PSP. Um. So I don't know. Did you guys end up with uh, something at the end there? Not exactly. So it's a it's a DSL modem, and he wants to put a PFSense firewall in between the modem and the rest of his network, just like any any yeah. 
person wants to, and that should be simple enough. However, the problem comes in is that he's using PPPoE, which is point-to-point -point over Ethernet. And uh, prior to the show starting, we were discussing this, and apparently PPPoE isn't used very much here in the States, but it is uh, heavily used over in Europe. Hmm. Um, Tom stated that he found tons and tons of posters on the NetGate forums. I found a bunch on Reddit and other uh, admin-type places about people trying to get their uh, PPPoE and PFSense configs to mesh well. Um, there's all sorts of different potential hacks you can do, like turn the modem on completely and then power up your your PFSense box completely um, because sometimes an ISP might hang on to your uh, your MAC address. Mm -hmm. Right. There is it. It's one of those things that I don't know enough about, and I have no way to simulate it. Someone even asked, like, hey, well, couldn't you just stand up a PPO, PPPoE server here and do some testing? I said, no, that wouldn't be helpful because my understanding from spending time on trying to help people with this is the company's not following clear standards is the problem. So if I were to set up a server, I would set it up right. <laughs> so it would probably end up working versus if someone else, you're dealing with all these different um, internet service providers that are expecting to you to use their DSL modems. Therefore, they're going, hey, we only tested with ours. We didn't test with something like PFSense. And this kind of extrapolates a little bit, but uh, I've talked to the people at NetGate and they've had this problem before. They adhere to such uh, standards that there's when they found incompatibilities, like even with IPsec versus other uh, firewalls, they found out that one of the companies, 48, was doing PPOE, uh, doing the IPsec in the wrong way. And they said that's been highlighted. They did, they have ways they can tweak it, but when they run incompatibilities because they adhere at um, everything to strict standards. Whatever the RFC says, that's how they write it because it's all open source. So they, they their adherence to strict standards sometimes creates problems on the other end for companies that tweak things a little bit mm -hmm. don't follow the standards and i think that's what we're running into with the pppoe um, it makes it that much harder for us to troubleshoot it's one of those um dump the logs do a lot of googling sometimes these are marked resolved sometimes they're not when i'm looking in the forums or whether or not people were able to uh, successfully achieve connections <clears throat> the forums are your best friend on that because there's other people in your areas that may be using the same provider that did solve the problem my problem is that it's hard for me to reproduce the problem because I can't set up, I can't lab that out the same way I can other uh, other scenarios. Yeah. Uh, possibly if you could provide us with a backup connection into your network, um, yeah. we might be able to help you with that, but we'll follow up on email. Yeah, follow up on email. Uh, with the logs of your friends, go in the logs, dump all the logs. Um, there are connection logs inside of PFSense, and grab each line of that and just copy paste it into google and you'll sometimes find someone with the same result hopefully you'll land on a forum with the the wonderful and heartwarming solved in brackets at the very top of the title right. i love seeing that <laughs> it's always handy you know you're looking at the right forum i'm on the right forum i look for the solved and you can even put that by the way as a google search and then put solved in there so you're only looking oh. for the ones that are the heartwarming solved <laughs> that's a good idea i haven't thought about that I'm, I'm all about Google efficiency. I'm not afraid to admit so much of our job here at 
you know, doing tech support is we Google things. Hell, the reason we have dual monitors is so one of them can be a, a Google search engine, and we're just popping <laughs> things in there. The one of my favorite things is highlighting something out of the logs inside of PFSense and right-clicking and saying "Search for Google." That feature is used. Uh, that's probably like the most used and underrated feature for things. So again, the browser being able to right-click on a highlighted sentence and dropping it into Google without having to hit Control C, Control V. Yeah. Like, that we're, we're just like cutting out the middleman. Like we're gonna Google this, dump it in a web interface log. <laughs> I'm surprised people aren't putting uh, Google Foo as a skill on their uh, resumes. I I think it's um, it, as systems have become more complicated. This is a your ability to Google. It's not it's not like a surrender uh, that you did it. It's the ability. It's a, it's a skill set every IT person needs because we just can't know everything. There yeah. is just too much. Um, to know there's too many scenarios so we spend a lot of time it's one of the things that drive me nuts about the microsoft event log is that it's not thorough enough and it, they should build that in so i can because microsoft's knowledge base is useless uh, most of the time i i have a, a weird event log notification i drop that in google hmm. i was dealing with that with the dell storage server i set up the other day and by the way now i hate dell storage servers um it gives super vague errors is why iSCSI isn't working uh. but anyways that I, I know we didn't exactly solve your problem. Hopefully, we set you off in the right direction. We'll we'll try to follow up with some more emails, um, Brian. But um, yeah, try do do a little reconnaissance, do a little Google foo. Um, hopefully, we can get the PPPoE working. And if anybody else ever wants to email in, you can email us at show at smlr.us. Yep. Yeah. Other people may have ideas. Uh, certainly, we know we have some uh, people who call them routers. And what is your <laughs> router solution? <laughs> <laughs> So that's where that's used. We we say router, therefore we're not using it. We we got rid of DSL mostly here in the US. It doesn't it's very There's some I mean if you're running uh DSL then you've got PPPoE right. generally. Except for my parents, they're still running it and they there's no kind of authentication on theirs. So they just if you plug in a modem, they they'll give you internet. Yeah. It's really weird. It's just not it's, it's used differently here. It's not even Mac authentication or anything it's just there's no authentication i yeah. swapped out a modem there and i just had to make sure that all, all authentication was turned off and that just worked yeah it's really weird that they use it here but they're they're really hard on authentication over there so mm-hmm. that's a puzzle i don't i don't know the answer oh by the way that switch we were trying to think of arista arista okay yeah, yeah. arista switch I, ebay has 48 port uh gigabit for 450 dollars yeah used used they're more than yeah, i can buy edges. new or like three grand yeah yeah they're nice i've heard good things about them but yeah they're not cheap mm-hmm. very cool all right now we're moving on to distro all right i don't think we have any more listener feedback distro fever distro yeah. fever all kinds of fun stuff we have a new Amnesic Incognito Live System, Tails, as it's known. Uh, for people that just want to keep that tinfoil hat stapled on their head, uh, use Tails all the time. I seen uh, I was in our Linux today, and someone was talking about trying to run it as their daily driver. I don't think that's the mm, most practical thing. Yeah. Not uh, the most practical. Right. There's Archman has a release. Uh, that, that was uh, interesting because I haven't seen it, but uh, I looked it up and they did have a release last year. So it's uh, not necessarily new, but, you know, so uh, Arch-based uh, featuring Calamari's for the installer. Yeah, the um, Kali Linux as well. And uh, I finally 
talked my friend Xavier into doing some YouTube videos. So one of his first releases is his review of the new Kali Linux and some of the tools mm. on there. Uh, Xavier has worked for some very large companies as a pen tester and red teamer, so he has some wonderful insights on there. Uh, he's currently working Purple Team for a company right now. If you don't know what Purple Team is, it means you break it and then you have to fix it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I found this hole in our product, and now I have to fix the hole in our product. <laughs> Now, this distro, uh, IPFire, is right up the show's alley. Yes. Uh, IPFire is a Linux distro used on firewalls and routers. So, Tom, potentially if you wanted to build your own firewall or switch or router, you might be able to use this thing. Yeah. Maybe. But that's a whole big undertaking. Yeah, I have not looked into it. So, you know, I started in old school. My very first firewall um, that was Linux-based was in 2001. And I've been running open source firewalls ever since. I used to run IPCOP, and I believe IPFire is probably somewhat it, a relation to IPCOP. It's, yeah, it's a fork of IPCOP. Okay, because the IPCOP project, I believe, is dead now, isn't it? Uh, I think so, yeah. I, I So I used to run IPCOP, and then when they went like a year and a half without an update release, then I switched over to IPFire. Okay. And I ran IPFire for a long time, but I really wanted to play with IPv6, and IPFire wasn't supporting it, and they had no, like, plan for support at that time yeah. so that's when i went to uh, pfsense and one of the things that keeps me at pfsense not just the familiarity with the project but uh firewalls have become you know they're well always have been that that final frontier it, it separates you from the rest of the world so i'm always now it's security so of the utmost concern i'm scared trying new firewalls until they've been well vetted ip fire's been around a while it's based on a good code base mm-hmm. um but it's also when PFSense is free, runs on everything, it's hard for me to justify switching because they have to have a killer feature uh, that makes me really want to switch to them. But I'm going to guess, though, that they're working closer with integrating WireGuard, which everyone's kind of excited about, uh, and that's a long ways off before we get WireGuard inside of PFSense. Yeah, They probably have exactly. some of the WireGuard in there, if I had to guess. But, hey, it's I'm sure it's a solid distribution. And generally speaking, firewalls, um, as long as you're blocking all the ports... You're good. So, oh, they also do have KS, KSLR in there, which prevents um, attackers from executing exploits with injected code. So they they're mm-hmm. keeping it pretty solid with all the latest uh, bells so, and whistles inside well, of it. So you say you can run uh, PFSense on on anything, but they don't release the ARM install for PFSense. No. They don't re- release it to the public or for the free version. Well, they actually kind of do because that's what Phil's running with his. With it, it's is it ARM based or is yours x86? Yeah. Mine's uh, mine is x86. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> IP Fire. I just looked it up. They do have uh, ARM install, oh, that's so you can run it on Raspberry Pi. Huh. What what PFSense had said, and they were open about this. Uh, they do have. Uh, if you buy, it's called the Java, Java board. It's got a weird name, something related to Java and coffee. Uh, coffee APU. They you can get the PFSense to run on those because it's the same as the ones they're using. The problem is the implicit driver support with uh, FreeBSD, mm-hmm. they have to spin it for that specific chip and the SOC. That's And they don't have any plans of doing it for Raspberry Pi, but this, they, like they said, source code's available. If you guys want to write the software for it, we don't. So they're only writing it for their specific the, the weird coffee chip that's used in the SG-1100, but you can source the parts. And they actually, for a while, were selling uh, selling them on there. It's made by um, 
I think the same company makes it that you bought yours from, Phil. The PC Engines Yeah, company? PC Engines uh, makes the board, and you can get the software to run on it, and they do have it in repositories because it does match that SOC. Hmm. But that's some of the weird challenges. Linux being more modular and FreeBSD seems to be easier to get it working, and there's obviously Linux running on Raspberry Pi, so that SOC is supported within the kernel. But the SOCs for some of the other boards are very specific, and FreeBSD is like, not really. We're not going to. And, of course, they don't have much incentive to do it unless it's something that they sell. And SOC stands for system on a chip? Yes. Yep. Okay. It's a system on a chip set. Uh, so when they do those, like I said, it has everything integrated. It has to have that kernel-level support. So that's why it's a little bit harder for uh, them to write it unless someone else contributes to the project. They only write it for the systems that they sell at NetGate. So either way, very cool. Yeah. And uh, I believe in another variation of it, and I like uh, Untangle is another firewall that's out there that's open source, has a really nice interface. Mm-hmm. Um, it's well-funded because they have a, co- a lot of commercial modules you can buy. Well, commercial feeds, I should say. So the firewall still remains open source even when you pay for it. But you, when you pay for it, you get cool um, extra module feeds for things like uh, threat protection, for um, analytics and blocking websites, blah, blah, blah. So for people that want that filtering. The filtering's not free, not because it's a closed source problem, it's the feed problem. Someone's got to have a knock team pulling all that data together, and it, there's a subscription for that. Uh, but it's another open source firewall that runs Linux that you can poke away at. And something for uh, listeners who are just trying to get into Linux, there's a new release of Linux from scratch. Ooh. Um, Linux from scratch version 9 um, includes everything from building your own kernel to deploying a desktop environment and it it will walk you through doing everything uh just from scratch i guess <laughs> yeah yeah um and i'll mention proxmox so uh proxmox everyone knows them for their virtualization stack which is a really nice uh, virtualization server and jay's a big fan of it and been running it for a while but they're also if you're say i'm running proxmox if 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 it's in my head, I always say, which one are you running? Are you running their mail server or are you running their virtualization stack? Because mm. they do have a full mail gateway system, and their latest version 6 is out and is based on uh, Debian 10. So it, they have, and this is popular in Germany, uh, at, well, Europe as a whole. So some of the clients that we deal with here, they always don't, you, they're not running Office 365 or G Suite. They're like, we don't trust either one of those American companies. That is like the direct answer we get from them. Yeah. So they run things like uh, Proxmox, and I think Clear OS, and a couple others. Uh, they run their own mail servers, and it creates a little bit some interesting challenges we've had setting up some of the uh, satellite offices they have here. Uh, but yeah, they, they flat out said, we don't trust your cloud providers in the U.S. We like to run our own thing. So uh, yeah. some of you may not have thinking, well, there's a mail gateway. Don't everyone just use Gmail or ProtoMail or whatever? Like, no, there's a lot of companies running, and that's why there's a new release of the new Proxmox 6 mail gateway. Hmm. Which I believe it comes with commercial support and everything. So there's, yeah. still, there's still a big market for that, for people running their own mail servers. They do support uh, ZFS and to boot from a ZFS mirror. Yep. Mail servers so need um, raid arrays. I mean, mail is a, when you're talking about for a corporate email, it's it's intense. Mail is oh, yeah. uh, far from dead. Matter of fact, it's, man, I look at how many emails oh. I have. It had, it, if we were to try to host our mail again, um, I have seven, seven or eight uh, terabytes of mail. I don't know, some incredible number because I mm. don't delete any emails and Gmail lets me, so 
therefore I keep all of it. So if I ever have to reference things, I have it. Uh, well, and for businesses, that's a big documentation point too. It, so exactly. you have to keep it for uh, legal reasons. Yep. Um, and we deal with a lot of uh, retention, HIPAA compliance and stuff like that. So we have to build mail archives for a lot of people. It's amazing mm-hmm. the amount of mail that it's just, it's a staggering number. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, that's the bottom of the distro do you see, list. Do you see condors? What's that? I, this is another one I don't think I've seen in a long, or I don't know if ever. Condors. Uh, or is it C-O-N-D-R-E-S? Condors. Condors. Huh. Uh, that looked interesting. I'm trying to look, I'm reading through it, I'm trying to look what the base is, but uh, it, uh, it's not saying. It says it's based on Arch. No, it doesn't. Okay. It has all hmm. the different fun desktops, Cinnamon, Mate. And Condress, Control Center, whatever that is. Huh. Hmm. New kid on the block. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about it is that, by default, it kind of looks like Windows. Yeah. You know, that mm-hmm. that's an easy transition because people are um, not always willing to change desktop environments. And that does mean coming from Windows. That's the first challenge they face is it doesn't look like my Windows, and I just know where things are in Windows. Right. Which is also my problem because I've been using GNOME for so long, I'm lost in Windows. <laughs> I'm like, where's that at? Where do I log out again? I know the feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've become kind of Windows dumb. And someone says, don't you run an IT company that supports Windows? I said, I have a staff now. I, I, I have now become that boss that doesn't know how some things work. <laughs> the only way I find it anymore is it just search. You can't like dig around and find anything in menus anymore. Windows has become so it's so many clicks to change a network setting. I'm like, why did they hide this? They don't want you to change network settings now. Yeah. And they have the big dumb menu for like printers. I'm like, no, no, give me where's that stupid printer dialog? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, this is not the Windows review. All right. <laughs> I'll just bash on it. <laughs> Let's jump on over to the news. Who wants to start? Um, I'll take it. I've got something that riffs off the show title. So um, the Surrey Satellite Technology Company has released an image and video of the Earth um, captured by a low Earth orbit satellite. And that picture was taken by a Raspberry Pi and an RPi camera. Oh, hmm. um, so this this device, this Pi, was launched into space by a Soyuz rocket in July of 2019. And the first image came back, and it's it includes the coasts of France, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, and Denmark. And this is believed to be the first picture taken of Earth from space using a Raspberry Pi camera. Oh, that's neat. That is cool. I, I, I like that there's a publication called Satellite Today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? That's still really, that's a great picture, though, by the way. That's really cool. It's Neat. it's surprisingly clear too. Um, one of the things is kind of relates to SpaceX. One of the SpaceX's goals that they really did achieve, and um, where their financial stakes comes from, is uh, SpaceX was cutting the cost, and I believe it's like one twentieth what it used to cost to launch stuff into space. And uh, that was kind of their goal was to be a game changer. And as much as Elon uh, catches a lot of news articles about Tesla. After reading his book, I realized Tesla is like a, a blip on his radar in terms of technology. Yeah, cool. We kind of man- managed a car thing, and we kind of came up with something cool. But look what we're doing over at SpaceX. We really changed the industry 
in a greater way uh, on the SpaceX front than they did on the car front. And it's funny to see them talk about that. When you really dig into technologies, the cars are actually rather a simple achievement by what they've done over here. And um, they came in and beat the incumbents like Lockheed Martin and things like that to help going, you know, we need to change the space industry. If we want to get there, we got to get there cheaper. We got to get there more efficient. And we got to launch Raspberry Pis into space. And now this is practical. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, moving on. Um uh, a couple minutes ago, we were discussing mail, and this uh, one is quite bad. Very um, bad. Exim, uh, Exim is a popular MTA, a mail transfer agent. Um, it receives SMTP messages directly from clients, but Exim is written in C, and with it comes all of the horrors of the C language, including um, memory management or <sighs> mismanagement. Yes. Uh, so. This vulnerability is another in a string of remote code executions uh, that has been happening all summer long in Exim. Mm. This, this particular vulnerability affects every single version yes. of Exim, every single one, up to 4.92.2 from the beginning of Exim till yesterday, basically. Um, Jeez. This... this RCE uh, is done via a buffer overflow. Um, an attacker, uh, an unprivileged attacker, sends a crafted server name identification, SNI, uh, message during a TLS negotiation. Um, and then that allows the attacker to run uh, privilege, run code on a device running XSIM as root. Um, something that we noticed uh, Google has an OSS fuzz project. Um, they will do <laughs> fuzzing tests against any open source project that's configured to use it. Exim is noticeably missing from this free service that they could be using. Oh, they better get on it. Yes, they should. I have some good news to report. So this is directly related. We were curious about how many XM servers Shodan had indexed. This is no Shodan's index does not represent the internet, but it does represent a large portion of the internet because they do index things. There are five million four hundred ninety-eight thousand nine hundred twenty-seven XM services public. Now, how many of them are running four point nine point two? The happy to news for report is when we first broke this story on Friday, there were only a thousand of them at four point nine point two. The currently patched one we're up to nine thousand only a couple days later so we're at nine thousand three hundred and twelve out of five million mm. um available servers that are now patched so we patched a few of them oh geez <laughs> so we're now eight thousand more patched since i reported this on friday <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're not near to that five million patched which would be wonderful so uh there's just going to be a lots of wreckage and ponage all over the place with this this is not good that's quite the number though isn't it Oh, Five my gosh. million. Yeah, it's worth seeing. And that's, that's the ones we know of, uh, not to mention how this will be, because people have them behind firewalls, which means they'll be used for exploiting internal things and lateral movement between networks. Uh, and it'll undoubtedly be a uh, Metasploit framework add-on for this soon enough. This is not good. <laughs> it's, an, it's a 9.8 on the CVE score, by the way. We're, we're hitting nine on the CV scale, and it's like an earthquake. Nine's bad. <laughs> the, yeah. the CV announcement that I found for this um, states that it was 10. Oh, it was a 10? I thought it, it said was 9.8. It was 10 So because it's trivial 
uh, to exploit. Um, now, an exploit hasn't been made public to anyone but the XM developers, but now people are definitely going to be poking. Oh, you're, okay, I see. This 3.0 metrics is a 9.8, but the base score on the on the 2.0 severity metrics is a 10. So we, we achieved perfect score. <laughs> <laughs> this is bad. Let, let's go to something a, a bit more Please get some pleasant. uplifting news. <laughs> um, so th- this one is about uh, Mozilla and their work on the DNS over HTTPS protocol. Yeah, don't. Don't. My Um, Homer Simpson logo for that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So back in 2017, Mozilla began working on this protocol, and uh, they they provided it in Firefox, and you could opt in uh, to use DNS over HTTPS. So uh, just the other day, they published their findings over two years of having this running out out in uh, Firefox browsers. The key findings um, enable Mozilla to determine how they can best deploy it, uh, how they can honor enterprise configurations for things like split horizon DNS, and also how to respect user choice about parental controls uh, for those uh, parents who want to run Firefox in their house or on their children's devices instead of Chrome or something like that. So um, it's it's just a blog post about uh, what Mozilla is going to do next. And they state that their plan is to continue to gradually roll out DNS over, HTT- over HTTPS in the United States um, starting in late September. Um, this is going to be just a, a canary deployment to a small percentage of users. And if all that goes well, Mozilla will announce um, shortly when they're going to plan for their 100% deployment. And I believe... Uh being ahead of the curve, PFSense has updated their DNS uh, system, so you can actually point it locally. So you can actually have DNS resolution over DNSSEC, or having PFSense go DNS over HTTPS, or have your Firefox Mozilla browser pointing at a local server on PFSense as its DNS with DNS over HTTPS. That, uh, I do something similar to that. So uh, I don't run bind on PFSense, I run unbound. And then you can configure DNS over TLS. Yes. So you can connect to something like Cloudflare or Quad9 mm-hmm. or some other uh, DNS over TLS provider. Yep. And then you can force all of your network traffic um, to go through a specific rule to only use your configured DNS server on the firewall. Yep. It has a lot of flexibility on that, and which is kind of cool. And I know I've seen already the, the complaints about all these companies going, but we want to filter our users, and DNS is how we've done it because we can't see in the traffic unless we install a cert. So this further breaks that because it goes over 443. It makes it that right. much harder to filter people's mm-hmm. DNS. Well, that's why I, I have the same thing with PSN set up, where, uh, but I don't have the, the client side where it can connect to my PSN to pull uh, DNS over HTTPS. So, um, we'll take a look at your config after the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll share mine and we'll get yours working right. Yeah. It's also, it's easy just to do the TLS version, uh, which is a little bit faster. That Uh, is what I have running right now is over TLS. So it's pulling from Cloudflare. So, and everybody internally is connecting to my PFSense. And so all the DNS requests going out are just, uh, are encrypted right now. It's just, it's not running the, the server side 
so that my like my laptop can connect to it. So that's what I need to look at. And okay. I think it's just a checkbox to turn it on. Is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll get that. We'll get you rolling on that. All right. Awesome. And uh, I'm going to end uh, my news with another <laughs> uplifting one. Um, this this one really threw. I think it threw all of us for a loop. Um, yeah. Richard Stallman spoke at Microsoft Research this what? week. Yeah. Stallman at Microsoft? Yeah, uh, the, the world is still here. Uh, we're all alive. Windows uh, still we isn't in, free. Are we in the upside down? I think I think we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was an unexpected turn of events. There's just, yeah. Wow. Stallman there was just like, whoa. <laughs> uh, the main topics that uh, Richard Stallman discussed were the continued importance of free software, GPL version 3, uh, GNU versus Linux. Um, Stallman stated that he had a list of small requests, such as making GitHub push users to better software license hygiene because Microsoft now owns GitHub. Yeah. Um, uh, making hardware manufacturers publish their hardware specs and make it easier to work around Secure Boot. Um, All good stuff. So then you must be wondering has Stallman's distaste for Microsoft lessened? No. No. No, not at all. Um, I'm sure he hurled insults. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He stated at one point, uh, this is from uh, someone's notes who was actually there, uh, it's hot in here. Can someone open up Windows? (laughs) (laughs) And he also stated that sometimes there is a use for Windows, which is kind of interesting. He's an interesting... I I would definitely go see him speak again. I would too. It was... He was... uh, He's an interesting person um, overall. Even if he's not the most practical human being, you can't exactly live like Richard Stallman. Well, not everyone can, but uh, he's still very interesting to be in a room with. I, One thing that I have learned is I will never get involved in an email uh, back and forth discussion with him ever again. Uh, I, have, I have learned my lesson there. He, he will email you a lot. <laughs> That is the understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> it's what one of these days Phil's gonna have to do a write up about that. What happens when you email Richard Stallman? <laughs> I got to the point where I I dreaded opening up uh, my my email client to see if there was just a message waiting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So this was cool. Microsoft brings XFAT to the Linux kernel. And no one's getting sued. That's a good title, especially yeah. with Microsoft involved, because they're a company that is built on lawyers and, and layers of lawyers. There's like it's like one of those Russian nesting dolls of lawyers. There. <laughs> 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 so, uh, but this is cool because you know Phil, who just had to use XFAT to uh, have things on there, and sometimes XFAT can be a little bit finicky. But now we're just bringing it to the kernel. It's going to be all integrated, and all everyone's going to be happy. And it's under GPL license. So yeah, I had to install. Uh, uh, XFAT uh, Fuse and XFAT yes. Utils. I mean, it's it's not really it's not really a pain in the butt. It's just one of the steps that you go to get things working. But yeah. being in the kernel, that's going to make it useful for all the rest of the ten of us, right? <laughs> Use it. Well, yeah, and it's just going to become a native part of when you load Linux. It'll just have this built in, so there's no. And I've run into this where you go, oh uh, crap, hold on, app get install Fuse and things like that. It removes that step because it's going to be natively installed. So that's going to be really nice. Um, Dell, matter of fact, dell.com slash Linux 
Dell made an index for all their Linux workstations and laptops, and they made it easy. Dell.com slash really? Linux. That's actually rememberable. It'll be in the show notes, but, you know, that seems like something you could be typing in right now. Uh, so if you're looking for a Linux workstation, laptop, or whatever from Dell, they're getting more friendly. They realize, yeah, people might like this stuff. Uh, you know, we do love it. So if you're looking for Linux only, System76.com is a wonderful place to head over to. But some people, you know, System76 System doesn't have every configuration that works for everybody under the sun. Uh, and a lot of people do really like Dell, and when they're doing some corporate purchasing, uh, now you can corporate purchase your dev team a whole bunch of Dell laptops and make them easy to find um, instead of having to figure out which ones support Linux. So thank you, Dell, for uh, caring about the community in some level, or just figuring out how we make money off of us. I don't know which mm-hmm. one it is, but hey, whatever, we can find our Linux laptops That's easier. That's it, yeah. I know for a long time they they only had their higher end stuff. Yeah, their that, XPS to run Linux. ones. But it sounds like they and those are getting more affordable. Um, those they, they reviewed as really good Linux laptops that uh, Dell XPS dev laptop they sell, and it, it's a good line of solid hardware. Um, and when you're talking about companies wanting to purchase, you know, a thousand of them uh, for their dev teams, you need to be able to a company that can easily accommodate a thousand. I don't know that System Seventy Six is there. Like they make a wonderful system, but could they sell a thousand to a company, two thousand to a dev team um, at somewhere that needed them? Yeah. I don't know if there really is there as much. Hmm. Veronix has an article that ARM-powered Lenovo Yoga C360 laptop to see better support with Linux 5.4. Now, I'm, I'm excited in general about this, not specifically about the Yoga, but because we're seeing more and more development on ARM. And I think ARM laptops, uh, like the Pine 64 we've talked about a couple times, it's shipping. Uh, this is kind of the future for a lot of these basic computing. Um, we, we see these ARM-based with a system-on-a-chip laptops made for, like, the Chromebook. Um, they work amazing. Like the battery life on them is stupid long compared to a standard laptop. Uh, Arm just has a better efficient system. That's why the Raspberry Pis are so popular. So building this into a laptop or like the Cutie Pie tablets uh, is pretty awesome. So specifically the Yoga 360, uh, you're going to be able to hack it and convert it back over to a full Linux laptop. Uh, but they're now going to integrate more of this into the kernel uh, with the upcoming kernel. So then there's a Arch 64 laptop GitHub projects uh, running their C630 Linux support is lacking only Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, but this appears to be rectified in the mainline. Uh, LTA, LTE Accelerated Graphics is uh, possibly, uh, might be possible soon too. And what these are is some of these are a little bit higher in Chromebooks that have LTE cards built into it. So now you have your wholly portable Linux workstation that can connect to LTE, connect to Wi-Fi, connect to the network, have all my Linux utilities on there, and a nice tight integration. So that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I was so happy to find this, and this is what got me to switch to the later version of Pop! OS. I use Shutter constantly. It's one of my tools that is, uh, if you do any type of support or if you do, like I do, thumbnails on YouTube, uh, it's very helpful for that. What happens is people email me a question, and I just want to tell them to click on a thing, so I go and grab screenshots of it. Not only do I grab a screenshot, that's easy. I want to put an arrow, because I always got to tell people to point at a thing. You know, this, look look at this, and then add a quick note. Shutter does that in seconds. I can grab a screenshot, I can draw an arrow, that this is where you're supposed to click, and I can even do a little circle, click this to be a little bit more, you know, forceful of this is the button I want you to click on. Uh, being able to do that is difficult when they remove Shutter from the later versions of Ubuntu in 19. They finally have a PPA, and it's an updated version of Shutter, so that solves that problem. Uh, and if you haven't heard of Shutter before, it's a wonderful tool for doing screenshots and indexing and organizing them and cropping them and all the other features all in one little panel. Uh, it even has a built-in uploader to Imager and lots of other places, so you can actually, on the fly, just push all that data somewhere. 
uh, yeah, for doing tech support stuff or doing write-ups, it's just it's wonderful. Uh, speaking of that, planned features in 1910. We're getting close to it. We're only, uh, well, less than a month away from its release, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the new features are going to be, uh, scroll down here, uh, theme support for Snap apps. Uh, this is sometimes where, uh, that's it's something that doesn't seem like a big deal until you start loading up Snap apps. You're like, hey, this doesn't match what everything else looks like. And I'm distinctly running on this. They're going to have theme support on that. Uh, special icons for the trash and external drive. That little nicety, I'm appreciating little things like UI improvements like that more and more, having nice little icons. Uh, as they did when I switched to the 19 uh, version of Pop! OS, the icon set update, it's so appreciated. It's like, I like this, this looks better. Um, NVIDIA drivers on the ISO. Yes, they're the proprietary drivers, which will make Richard Stallman unhappy, but NVIDIA out of the box. Interesting. That's that's got to be pretty controversial. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Salman is rolling around and holding and shaking his hand at the cloud right now. So, <laughs> um, I don't know what Flickr-free boot for Intel. i never seen this problem, but apparently they're fixing that. So people have Intel uh, and have flickering problems. Updated uh, GTK themes. Guest session option on the login. Um, FWUPD. FWUPD. Firmware update daemon. Yes, that's really cool. Um, mm. I've seen these updates coming through, and this has been a problem with Linux. Sometimes we used to have to boot into Windows to get firmware updates pushed because they just didn't have Linux installer. Remember, sometimes Windows is useful. Sometimes Windows is useful, <laughs> like when I have to update firmware. And uh, they definitely have that. And experimental ZFS uh, support. So you're as an install, not just an add-on, but actually being able to install it on there. This is all features coming uh, to it. So that's pretty cool. You're gonna, uh, I, I don't know about the ZFS on boot like i I don't feel as ready for it uh as my boot device maybe i'm wrong on that i don't know at least the option is being presented um during boot time even if you don't use it it's still making headway yeah and that's that seems like a good thing to me yeah so i guess it's good i just what is experimental on my boot drive feels uncomfortable for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) so maybe that's what (laughs) it's in a release it's an experimental for your boot drive uh, ZFS, if anyone's familiar with it, is awesome, but also not easy to recover when something goes wrong. You just reload from a backup. Hmm. Yeah. But I haven't taken the time to learn um, LVM. So this is, uh, in, people know LVM has snapshot features and a lot of other features like uh, on-the-fly expansion. Um, Jay helped me expand my drive. Uh, but now I can maybe skip learning because I know ZFS commands. So that's the other reason to, to do it is I do know ZFS commands better than I know LVM. So I can skip my LVM knowledge. I got a gap just missing called LVM in my head. So <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. So you're with the two. Jay's a, Jay's a wizard at it. I told him he should do videos on it so I can better understand it. WireGuard releases new snapshots while not expected to the Linux 5.4 mainline integration. Uh, but WireGuard is the really popular VPN. It's really cool. It's fast. Um, a lot of people have asked me to, to dive into it, but it's still very far off because it's not until Linux 5.4 that we're going to get native integration. And with things like PFSense, I don't know when it's going to get integrated. They are working on a compatibility problem with licensing uh, to get it into the FreeBSD world, but I think they've they've hashed it out and the developer uh, actively, would, he realizes the power it would offer in the BSD world. So they're working out their differences and hopefully once we see it in both places, um, I envision if you ran that VPN directly on something like a FreeNAS box, you'd be able to have easy access to your files anywhere. And obviously PFSense being a massively popular firewall, their integration in that would be pretty awesome. 
But I will admit, this is a score one for team. What is that other uh, fork of PF Sense? Um, Open VPN. Open. Uh, op- Open Sense. Sorry. Open Sense. Yeah. Open Sense. I believe has some integrations of the beta into it. Uh, people ask why they won't do that PF Sense, and that's uh, the PF Sense people are very, very security oriented, and they don't like the word beta on anything that runs things like secure VPN. That is not welcome in the enterprise market. And a little side note about that, I did know, and I commented this before, um, there's some big, big companies that have, uh, they're hiring for for people doing PF Sense work. It includes mm-hmm. MasterCard was looking for PF Sense people. That's because they're using it in their stack. So yeah. uh, it's being used by some very large companies. Or the, the shift towards open source and the firewalls because of companies, um, we're looking at you, 48, and your recent disaster with your VPN going, we can't yeah. trust these companies like we thought we could. The 48 VPN got pwned for anyone who didn't know. Like yes, it did. In a very bad way with a magic packet. Mm. Literally called magic. That, that, that You could them. exfiltrate administrator credentials Yes. Just from this specially crafted packet. Yes. And that's that's just a disaster, the fact that it, the yeah, that's I didn't have it in the news topics, but uh, type in 48 Magic Packet. And it doesn't just affect 48, it affects a couple other companies that are selling commercial VPN service. And this is one of those questions. Why did you guys break something that was open source, on, you know, based on SSL VPN? It's your magic sauce that created this magic packet. It's not the protocol that's broken. It's the add-on that these companies do the closed source add-on is where the breakage came. There's yeah. other scary things about uh, FortiGate itself. It's it's based on a Linux kernel, and its its login UI, um, which you will, it's based on uh, old Apache 2.2, um, hacked up so that way you can configure it to do all the things that a FortiGate does. You're talking, you mean Fortinet? Uh, Forta OS specifically. Yeah, yeah. And to and I, I think we kind of talked about it, but that other uh, closed source stack that a lot of other firewalls are built on, including SonicWall, they had gotten hacked, and uh, that would turn into a big disaster because all these different devices run it. Same thing; they all based it on this closed source stack. That turns out no one bothered um, digging into the fact that they haven't updated their TCP/IP stack since twenty two thousand seven or something like that. And all these companies just integrated into all their products. Uh, Go open source, guys. It's it's free. It's better. It's getting updated. It's uh, anyways. I won't get too off topic on that rant. I thought this was kind of a neat uh, article over at the Tech Republic. Python is eating the world. How one developer side project became the hottest programming language on the planet, and Python is like becoming obviously more and more popular. This is a dive into you know why he created the language interview with uh, the author of Python. But it's also taken over the IoT world. So there's a couple different spots, and we even talked about this. We got the IoT world, all the uh, Pi programming languages, Adafruit Industries. Uh, we happen to know someone mm-hmm. who works there, and um, we do. We do. Yeah, she she's one of the co people for uh, the the lug the lug meetings that are at the library that you've been to. Did you? I don't know if you know. She works for Adafruit. Um, it's the only mm. girl there. <laughs> so, I can't remember her name. Right Actually, now. I haven't been. I haven't been to a meeting in over a year, so I don't. Um, know. She's run the Python for uh, the Python class for uh, PenguinCon too. Her cool. Name completely. Oh yeah, right yeah. Now. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, uh, but she works for Adafruit Industries, and she does all the uh, the Pi uh, with the Arduino. So it's like Pi mm-hmm. or something like that with all the programming that's all done in Python. All the controls of GPIO on Raspberry Pi generally are the Python libraries. Um, the big data analytics that are built into SQL um, when we were at Microsoft in 2017. 
they all are Python libraries to do their data analytics and IoT stuff. And it's, uh, Python is now becoming directly built into uh, SQL. So it is a, um, like, Python's everywhere now. So good article, yeah. good dive into it, of why you would create a programming language, that kind of history of it, um, and why Python succeeded. Because it was actually created at the same time as Perl. So Larry Wall's Perl, mm. which makes my eyes hurt when I try to read Perl code, um, it started as a the same way. It just Perl was complicated and Python's a little easier to learn than Perl. But good article, good read, um, fun dive into it. Now, I didn't know as much about this, and I thought this was kind of cool. So over at ItsFoss, they have an overview of Intel's Clear Linux features and installation procedures. So Clear Linux is an Intel-sponsored open source project, and it has a lot of features. It's dedicated to be a on-prem and cloud mix-up uh, installation. So it's not like your standard Linux distro. It's very focused on running things like containers and everything else, all the things that you want for server backend. So it's not like a, a standard desktop distro and has um, really solid support and it seems to be gaining, Intel's funding it uh, pretty well and putting a lot of effort into it. It's got all kinds of cool features uh, focusing on the cloud. Now, where where I bring that up is because where it gets a little bit interesting and sorry Intel, there's Pharonix release and eight-way Linux distribution uh, benchmarks on the new AMD Epic processor. And I am absolutely thrilled with my AMD processor and the speed and all the updates. So they're trying all the latest kernels on it. And they compared it to Fedora, Ubuntu, uh, Debian, OpenSUSE, Red Hat Enterprise, and Clear Linux. And the winner was Clear. Clear Linux. So, <laughs> um, it, it basically won on all the benchmarks all the way across, uh, being very optimized. What I think that's very interesting. So Intel helped you know really do a lot of fine tuning um, you know, on the on the Clear Linux project, but it runs way better on uh, than some of the other distros on AMD. So thanks thanks Intel um, for for the donations and things that you're pushing towards Clear Linux. Interesting that it runs so fast on these new AMD Epic processors, uh, but. In some tests, almost uh, there were some pretty substantial uh, benchmark results that really put clear on top of some of the other ones, uh, which is Ubuntu was actually uh, consistently the slowest of all of them. But I think Ubuntu being so geared towards the desktop interface, well, I know they have a lot of support in the enterprise market as well, but um, still interesting read either way. And that is the last I have for the news. All right. I have a few things. Uh, So I saw there's a podcaster. His name is... uh, 5150. That's what he goes by? Yes. He passed away this week. That is sad news. He it was uh, he was a lot of fun to hang out at the uh, last time I hung out with him at the Ohio Linux Fest and again at the most recent Penguin Con. Mm-hmm. I hung out with him and chatted with him online a handful of times. Yeah. So we will yeah, mourn so, his passing. Yeah. It's uh, sad to see him go. For um, sure. The other thing is on my phone, I got Android uh, 10. Yes. Or your version Q, but I think they're going away from the letter and the yeah. They ran stuff, out of sweets. They? they ran out of sweets. <laughs> it's it's cool. It's got dark mode. I turned it on. It looks weird. It's it's <laughs> quiche. Like it. Quiche isn't sweet enough for uh, for it to be an Android only thing version. I think of, like what else starts with Q that tastes <laughs> good and sweet and right. <laughs> so there's a few things I, I noticed that they're changing on it, um, and in this Tech Radar article, uh, they've added uh, Face ID. Uh, uh, for authentication, for either for logging into the phone or for uh, purchasing things, um, they're taking away that Android Beam thing. 
Oh, really? You know, where you could, like, touch two phones together and send something. Uh, okay. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess they're taking that away. Um, and there's a few others. So they've added foldable support. Foldable um, phones. Yeah. Uh, so other, other than that, I've been running it for about a week and a half now. You know, I don't... Um, I think it's kind of, um, and it's a Samsung specific, but if you look up Samsung DeX Ubuntu, um, it's kind of, and it's interesting to see if Android's going to cover more of this, if it's going to be more baked in, uh, but Samsung's kind of leading the way with DeX, and what it is is using your phone's processor to run Ubuntu, and then mm. a separate screen, and it's, it, it all runs, so basically you dock a what would look like a laptop is kind of the concept. And this is not something that's not been tried before. It's just not been very successful. Uh, you take your phone and use it as the brains to run a computer. And then now Samsung's actually worked with Ubuntu to create a special flavor of it on there. Really? Which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, kind of a segue into it, but it's as we progress, do we have a more unified device network where there's some type of convergence between there. Because, I, you know, my laptop is, I need all the power here, but I don't need all the power other than to, uh, when I'm at home, other mm-hmm. than I'm just looking up articles, replying to people and emails and things like that. I'm fine. If you give my phone a bigger screen, you kind of solve some problems for me. Of All I really care about is the bigger screen to reply to emails for. And yeah. uh, I wonder how they're going to start integrating it. So I think about the flip screen support in there. There's a, mm-hmm. There is support for external displays with Android as well. That's I've, part of what the flip screen support is. Yeah. I've gotten my phone to work with a uh, a USB dock. Yeah. So it has uh, they so the network on it doesn't work, but the uh, keyboard, mouse, and uh, external display works with it because um, it has that uh, what is that Q Link or yep. no, what is that? It's yeah. The, yeah, it's the one built in for the external display. Yeah. So well, you have to install an app on the phone to get it to work, and then you I use the uh, USB C OTG uh, cable, plug that into my little USB dock, and I have HDMI to a TV and keyboard and mouse, and I've got a big screen that I can run my phone on. That's pretty cool. What yeah. screen did you go with? Or did uh, you, you're just using it? It was just to... testing. I didn't oh, okay. really do a lot with it, but uh, but yeah. Because there's a few screens now that are uh, really lightweight and thin, and I've thought about just carrying an extra one. One, it can either work as a dual screen for my laptop, or some of them have Android support on the screens. Mm-hmm. So, That's also got to be useful for Android developers. Uh, who are sitting at their workstation, and then they could also just pull up um, some extra stuff onto their phone. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I need? Uh, and I have a keyboard. I use a Bluetooth one that I uh, actually use a Microsoft mm-hmm. one. It's probably the best one you can buy. Um, Ali is, Microsoft makes it, but it, I've used it a lot with my um, tablets. I've used it a lot with my phone. It's just a better way to type. Is typing is still faster, especially when you type in an IP addresses. The voice detection just doesn't do it justice. Oh, yeah. uh, but it'd be kind of cool if I can bust out a little setup out of a small backpack like here's my screen here's my phone here's a network jack and start doing network engineering work like right away from that oh you cool mm-hmm. we need to have an episode where we go into our everyday carry oh yeah for yeah. our particular jobs yeah yeah each one of us has kind of a thing i've, I've got so many um doodads that now i carry including um those thin network cables those are those have become like so awesome yeah those are neat so they're they're part of my daily carry for sure now very cool. Yeah, all right. Um, so I think that's all I had for news type stuff. Yeah. Um, we've, we've gone on for an hour, so I think we've, we've created some content for our, right. uh, our listening audience. <laughs> so while well, I'm still planning on going to Ohio Linux Fest, um, and I actually have to work the night before, 
So I'm hoping to find somebody that I could carpool with to go down so I can sleep on the drive down. I will have a confirmation for you guys this week because I have all my dates now lined up for things I have to go to. And I think Ohio Linux doesn't interfere like I thought it did with something else. So I'll let you know. Right. I don't mind driving. Well, the car will drive us. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we should all car, carpool together. Yeah, yeah I think it would be great. That. Yeah, I'm fine with that. And, and, you know, it's less than 300 miles away, so my car can make it on one trip. And if they have a charger to hotel bonus... <laughs> I was going to say, uh, if you drive, I'll pay for gas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 300 miles, yeah, 300 miles is like, you know, $6 or $7 of electricity in that car. Yeah. <laughs> now, the sad thing is that the last thing I was talking to 5150 about was getting together at the Ohio Linux Fest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He mentioned it to me. He asked me if I was going to. That was probably mm-hmm. one of the few. Met. He asked me if I wanted to do an interview on Hacker Public Radio. Uh, did he run that by himself or was there a team of people? No, he was... Uh, just, he was just one of the people that... Just one of the people, out. okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, he went in there, and he said... He asked if I was going to the Ohio Linux Fest, and I said I was undecided at the time, so... Yeah. Oh, well. Well, we've reached the end of SMLR episode... I'm going to scroll up to the top. I forgot the episode number. I know it's 314. Let's talk about pie. <laughs> this is Tom Lawrence. Tony Bemis. And Phil Parada. And... Before we leave, email show at SMR2US if you want us to read some listener feedback. And thank you for listening. All right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to SMLR.us. Feel free to send comments to show at SMLR.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can... Bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs> 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 <laughs>